Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for us being at camp meeting. Lord, we ask that you provide us with guidance and your Holy Spirit as we go through camp meeting. Lord, please be with those that need your guidance. We ask that you pour out your Holy Spirit into this week. Let us connect closer to you in all that we do. Lord, as we spend an hour just talking about estate planning and other things, we ask that you provide us with wisdom. And let me speak words for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The who, what, when, and where of estate planning. So this is our third segment. What we did in our first segment is estate planning made simple. We talked about terms of estate planning. I passed out a term sheet. If, if you don't have one, let me know. I can give you one. And we talked about just about every aspect of estate planning. And I intentionally tried to hit everything that we had talked about this week. Then we talked about who has the power yesterday. And when we talked about who has the power, we're talking about powers of attorney. Today, <laughs> I love that text not working. I read this in the morning. Today, we are going to talk about who do you trust. So, in that aspect, we're going to talk about trusts, right? Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Most of us know this. It's, it's one of those proverbs that some of us hold on to when we need kind of an uplifting. It says, Trust in the Lord with all thy heart. Lean not unto thy own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. When we talk about trusts, this is probably one of the most, I'm going to say, discussed topics of estate planning. Because this is the greatest question that you always get. Do I need a trust or not? So here's the answer. I don't know. <laughs> Last two days, whatever confidence I built up, I just lost, right? <laughs> um, the reason I don't know is it really depends on your goals. It depends on your circumstances. I have to tell you, everybody does not need a trust. And the reason why is everybody's circumstances are different, but nobody is going to fit in this room into the exact same circumstances in which you have to have a trust. So what we do as estate planning attorneys, and what I challenge you to do is outline your needs. On Friday, we're going to talk about kind of a wrap-up in how do you make determinations. And what I will ask people when they first come in, after we do the usual conversations, the small talk, get to know each other a little bit, is what's your goal? What is your goal? Because your goal is going to define what your documents are. The other thing that's going to happen is your life is going to change. What works now under your circumstances may not work next year, and it may not even work five years from now. So some of the key factors that you really need to look at 
in a trust is drafting. Drafting is important for a couple things because there's really two trusts when we look at them. If you're married, we can have two separate trusts. We can have a trust for the husband. We can have a trust for the wife. And a lot of times they're mirror images, but maybe they aren't. What I mean by a mirror image document is except for the name, except for the he or she, they literally look the same. So again, I like to pick on myself. Um, my wife and I have mirror trusts, mirror image trusts. Except for our names in the he versus she, in the designation, our trustees are the same, our successor trustees are the same, and where the assets go are the exact same. Now, will that else be true? I don't know, maybe not. What really makes this interesting, so what makes this unique is when we get into non-mirror image documents. So let's change the facts just slightly. Let's say if I die, everything goes to my wife, and if she doesn't survive me, it goes to the United Cat Foundation. I like cats, okay? <laughs> let's, let's even more, more specific, the United Siamese Cat <laughs> Foundation. <laughs> my wife, on the other hand, she likes those other furry creatures that drool and stuff like that. We call them dogs. <laughs> so if she were to die, everything would go to me, and then it would go to the United Dog Foundation. Now, I don't know if there's a United Dog it's Foundation. It's a funny-looking mirror, funny mirror because it's not the same. So what happens if I pass away first? Everything goes to the dogs. <laughs> If my wife passes away, ultimately everything goes to the cats, right? So this isn't a bad thing, but the separate trusts gives a little bit more flexibility. Where you see separate trusts are in usually in two situations. First, you see them in business situations, and that's why I have a separate trust from my wife. One of the businesses I was in, it was a requirement that I keep all of my ownership in the trust or in the company in my trust. They never wanted my wife to become a partner. Nothing against my wife, it's just how our business was set up. And that's okay. The other reason that we had talked about doing it is because of liability. We talked a little bit about this the first day. If I were to be sued in my business, we would turn it over to our insurance carrier. If something happens to the insurance and that fails, the backup is it was a professional limited liability company. So the company hopefully would defend me because they would sue the company, not me individually. But if they somehow pierce the company veil, which is a legal term to say the company was a sham or wasn't handled correctly, then they were to go to my assets. Well, some of my assets were actually not mine anymore. They were in my wife's trust. So because the debts of the husband are not the debts of the wife and vice versa, those assets were protected. 
So our house was protected. It was in her trust. Some of our other assets was protected because it was in her trust. So it's yet a third level of protection. But that's pretty complex, right? Not everybody needs that, but that was our goal. That was our need at that time. That has changed slightly. Who knows? We may be changing our documents in the near future. So you look at drafting. Drafting is a key factor. Funding. So once you spend all this time, you draft the documents, the attorney drafts it, you go through it with the attorney, you read it, or the trust professional. I've got to say, times have changed since I first started practicing 20 years ago or 21 years ago, I forgot how long it's been now, where I used to sit in the room for every single word. I used to meet with the client. I was in there the whole time. And occasionally my secretary was in there and, you know, if there's any changes, she would scribble them down and she would run upstairs. I also felt bad because we met downstairs. Her office was always upstairs. <laughs> um, she would run upstairs and make the changes and bring them down. And she would show you the changes. And then we would send you home with your documents to reflect on them, to review them. And then you'd bring them back. Not many people do that anymore just because of timing. So a lot of times... We'll have a trust professional meet with individuals and they'll go through the documents, and that's not wrong. Actually, your office does that. I love that. That's a wonderful thing. And so, in doing so, you need to really look at the documents. But once you spend all this time getting your trust documents to say what you want them to say and to understand what the words are in there, right? They're your documents. You should understand them. We have to fund your trust. I have to say, this is the second way funding where trusts fail. Think of your trust as a vehicle. Okay, we all have vehicles. A lot of times we call them cars, right? Let's get rid of the idea of electric cars for right now. Let's say you have a combustion engine. What does your combustion engine need? Gasoline or fuel, right? What happens to your vehicle if there's no fuel in it? Stops. You've got a really expensive radio, right? It's the same way with your trust. Your trust is a vehicle, right? Think of it as an agreement that moves assets from one place to another. Just like your automobile moves you from one place to another, but your trust can only move assets from one place to another if the assets are in there. The same thing as your automobile can only move you from one place to another if there's fuel in it. So a lot of people say funding the trust. I sometimes say fueling the trust. It's an imagery that we understand. So what do I mean by funding? I mean retitling the assets into your trust. So a lot of times when you meet and you sign the documents, you sign your trust agreement, we'll actually have you sign a deed, transferring your house from your name or your and your wife's name to your trust. Because that's a requirement to have it in the trust? Yeah, yeah, okay. we're just renaming it. Instead of Christie's house, well, Christie's and Matt's house, to Christie's trust. But we don't stop there. Your personal property, 
you do what's called an assignment or a bill of sale. You transfer your personal property, your furniture, not only the furniture you have now, but in the future, into your trust. You take your bank accounts and you take them from your name. You put them in the trust name. You've probably seen this up in the corner of some people's um, checks. They'll say, you know, the Smith Trust. Now, not a lot of people do this because you don't really have to. Um, my wife, this was her biggest hang-up. Uh, she didn't like the idea of us having a trust, right? Because, you know, only a certain people have trust. She didn't like the stigma that brought to it. So it was real easy. I went down to the bank. I said, hey, how do we do this? They say, we're just going to put it in the computer. We don't care what the top of your checks say. It's really important what it says in our computer files. If you're old enough, we'll call it the signature card, right? Do you remember going into banks and they almost had index cards? And they had your account number and they had, you actually had to physically sign it? Man, I miss those days. <laughs> so, one of the numbers that I read, and it's been a little while, 85% of trusts are not funded properly. 85%. Let's switch that number. That means only 15% of people are doing it right. That is an incredibly low percentage. So what does it mean if you're in the 85%? What does it mean if you didn't do the deed and put your house in the trust? Well, it's vulnerable to some extent. But we've now made your trust a really nice paperweight for other paper. Well, it does work. But what we do is we get to run to probate court. And we get to use our pour over will. And we get to probate that house into that trust. And then one of the reasons that we probably wanted to have a trust, which was to avoid probate, we're still doing. Isn't that horrible? No, I'm serious. So funding your trust is one of the most important. You've spent all this time drafting. You've sat in a room or you've sat in an area listening to somebody talk about your trust. You've gone through various stages of it. You've tried to understand it. You've asked questions. You've done all of the right things. But until you put the assets, until you retitle them into your trust, that trust is not fully funded. And it's a continuous task. So if I go to the bank and get a CD, open up a new CD, it better be in the trust name. Here are the only assets that should not be in your trust. Number one, vehicles. I hate putting automobiles in a trust. Reason why is vehicles are rolling liability. Vehicles are rolling liability. Reason I say that is if you're going to get in an accident, statistically it will be in a vehicle, an automobile, right? What happens when you get in an accident? Somebody, either something gets damaged or somebody gets hurt. And then usually the person that gets hurt calls Sam or Lee Free or something like that. Pick your favorite personal injury attorney. And now what I've done is I've now gotten my trust sued because my vehicle is titled in my trust. So I have eliminated one of the reasons to have a trust, and that is asset protection. Isn't that fun? So not only have you funded your trust, but you overfunded it by putting your vehicle in there. And the same is true for husbands and wives. 
never both jointly hold your vehicle. Your vehicle should not be in your names and your wife's names. Ever, 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 ever. And the reason why is this. If I get sued because I may have sped and ran into somebody, and I'm liable, and my insurance company, for whatever reason, doesn't want to step up, and they sue me, or even they sue me anyway just to get to my insurance, because my insurance doesn't want to immediately hand over a check to the other insurance company. Then what happens is I brought my wife into the lawsuit because she is a co-owner of that vehicle, and she should have known better not to let me drive. <laughs> That's the argument, and you know what? That's actually a pretty sound argument. <laughs> so, why or how do we fix this if the vehicle's not in my spouse's name and I die? There is a TR-29 form at the Secretary of State, and you can now do these online. And what it says is the vehicle will pass to the next of kin or heir. So my wife goes in, she says, I am the wife, here's my husband's death certificate, transfer the vehicle. They never even charged a fee for it. Now I think they charge a nominal fee. Now, like anything else, there's a little bit of a, uh, a caveat to this, and that is the vehicle can't be, or the vehicles collectively can't be more, worth more than 65000 But most of us, that doesn't affect. And even if it does affect you, I, I was naive. Okay, When I first started practicing law, I had somebody came in and they had all these vehicles. Um, husband had passed away and we're transferring to the wife and she was worried that we're going to have to probate. I said, no, we have the TR-29 form. And uh, I used them so many uh, before you could do these online. They used to actually give me packets of them at the Secretary of State. So I'd just rip off one. We'd fill out the information, attach the title, copy of the death certificate. And then we started looking at the cars. I'm like, we might be over 65000 So I called Lansing. And I said, I'm not sure how much these cars are worth. I will go and have them appraised, and I will attach the appraisals just to make sure they're under $65,000. The lady actually laughed at me. She goes, she had worked for a Secretary of State for a long time. She said, nobody's ever called. She said, we assume that everybody lies to us. <laughs> <laughs> And that the vehicles are always worth less than 65000 So I said, thank you. <laughs> Hung up. <laughs> I did the right thing. I still had the appraisal. I did the appraisal. They were under it. But I did learn a lot from that. Or the motorhome. Right? The motorhome. Well, and when we talk about vehicles, you know, motorhomes are a great example. You know, walk around campus. You're going to see a wide variety of motorhomes. <laughs> um, you know, so it, it's unique. Um, the other follow-up to that is um, one lady probably gave me a better answer at the Secretary of State, and she said, we look at per vehicle per form. So if you have the three expensive vehicles, she said, just come in three different forms. We're just going to look at each one as long as they are not collectively over $65,000, but each. Yeah. So when we talk about funding, there's one other aspect that you may not want to put in your trust, and this goes back to our first discussion. IRAs are a big issue. 401ks 
404Bs, anything that is tax deferred. Most of the time you will not put this in your trust. Again, this is based on circumstances. So in a tax deferred account, if I have a beneficiary, that beneficiary can roll that account over into their own, keep the tax deferment as long as they take the minimum distributions when it's time. And I say when it's time because I don't know what the law is gonna be at that time. Is it on my time or is it on the beneficiary's time? And I'm not gonna go there, there's some specific rules about that. So a Roth, you probably put in the trust? Yeah, you could, because you've already paid the tax on the Roth. Now here is the change. It depends on your goals and circumstances. So I kind of told you the first day that we were together, my wife and I, we have named our beneficiaries our trust for our deferred tax accounts. Tax attorney hates this. The accountant hates this. But it meets our goals. Because at the time that we did it, we believed that our children shouldn't have not received those funds until later in life. I don't want to be in a situation where I name my children at this point in my life. I'm actually glad that Samantha didn't stay. <laughs> That's my daughter. I don't want to put it in this situation where she has the ability to get those assets. It's something that's important to us. Another year or two, that may not be an issue. Maybe even right now it's not an issue. But... Because if she got those funds, she, now she has to wait until they're mature? No, because she can cash them out, pay all the tax, and get the new Corvette. I grew up with someone that did that. Father passed away. It was passed on to the kids. Next thing I know, this 17 year old, literally a 17 year old, driving around in a Jaguar. Yep. You know what the insurance is for a 17 year old with a Jaguar? <laughs> it's impressive. <laughs> so, funding. What you have to remember, if you can't, if you remember anything from this discussion, if you have a trust, it's got to be funded. Otherwise, you've lost some of the benefits. If you have a trust, it has to be funded. If it isn't properly funded, you've lost some of the benefits of the trust. Because it would still have to go to probate. A portion of those assets would still have to go to probate. Right now, for individuals in 2019, it's 11.4 million per individual. So at portability, it's 22.8. We'll get to that in a minute about taxes. Maintaining your trust. So you spent all the time Going through drafting, you spent all of the time funding it. Everything's great. Now you have to maintain the thing. What do I mean by maintaining? First, rule of thumb, every five years, review it. You want to do something fun for your anniversary, pull up the trust and say, honey, we're reviewing our trust. <laughs> um, but seriously, you need to maintain the trust, so it means you need to review it. I would do it occasionally. Anytime there's been a change in your circumstances, anytime that there has been a significant change in the law, how do you know if there's a change in the law? Watch the news. Um, some of the law firms will actually send you notifications and say there's been a change, come in and see me. Um, there's pros and cons to that. So, maintaining also means of your trust that you are 
having to do a few extra steps. If you sell real estate, you can't just use a deed. You now all of a sudden have to have a certificate of trust to transfer the property. It's a term sheet. So you're just going through an extra step. It's part of the maintenance. So maintenance is one of the issues that you look at. Now let's talk about advantages of trust. You avoid the court, and he asked a question that I wanted to come back to intentionally. I didn't mean to ignore him, but I, I knew the answer was coming. If your trust is properly funded, you do not need to go to court, specifically probate court. What is probate court? Probate court is where nice people are that take your money in fees. No, they are truly nice people. I know most of the probate clerks in the area, and I know the probate judges, they're very nice people. Um, the probate court really does just a few functions. What the probate court does, it is first a place that we use for wills. So if I were to die, and we'll talk a little bit more about this with wills tomorrow, but if I were to die, somebody probates my will, first thing a probate court does is it determines if it's a valid will. It's also a place that we can go for disputes, right? I didn't pick on you yesterday, so I get to pick on you today. You knew it was coming. So, um, you are a beneficiary of my will, okay? What's your name? Jackie. Jackie. Congratulations, Jackie. <laughs> you now get half of nothing. <laughs> as I get older, we may change it, and maybe I'll put you as my sole beneficiary, and you can have 100% of nothing. Um, because the court just eats it up? No, I don't have a lot of stuff. <laughs> Didn't we start this conversation? I got a daughter at Southern, I got a daughter here. <laughs> um, but, so you're a beneficiary of my will. So we put it in probate, we give you notice that it's in court. We also give my two daughters and my wife notice. They say, hmm, we're not sure about this. We didn't know that she got added. Let's talk to the judge about this. We're going to call it a petition to determine the validity of the trust. I'm sorry, the will. And so the court will listen and say, why did she get put in the will? Right? So the court is a place to determine validity of the documents or if there's any disputes. And maybe what the only dispute is, Matt always said that he was going to give you 10%, but it changed now to a higher percentage, and they want to find out why. The court is a wonderful place to be when you need it. Most attorneys, their goal is to avoid court. If I am in court, I have failed. I consider it a failure. The reason I consider it a failure is because, number one, I wasn't able to work out the situation amicably. Number two, my negotiation skills have failed somehow. Or number three, there's been a breakdown in the people that are involved that we aren't able to come together. Now, sometimes the court is needed. Sometimes the court is there to make decisions, like we talked about for guardianship or conservatorships. But for the most part, you want to avoid litigation. The reason why is you lose control. You lose control of two things. You lose control of the outcome. You lose control of the expenses. Litigation is incredibly expensive. 
You don't believe me? Watch what litigators drive. <laughs> so, number one is you avoid court, okay? Now, going back to his question, what's the minimum for probate court? Uh, you can do a small estate. You can usually pop in and out of the probate court for, it used to be 15000 I always have to check the chart. Is it 18 now? Might have creeped up a little bit. Oh, 23. Okay. I haven't done one in a long time because most of my clients avoid court. So you can run into court, get an asset transferred under an assignment. Sometimes they call it a small estate for, let's say, 23000 So your answer is 23000 Okay. That's the cost? No, no, no. no. So here's, here's the cost of probate. The cost of probate um, is, depending which court you're in, either it's a $165 filing fee for a probate, $175 or $185, depending on how much they charge for the certified letters of authority. Right. On top of the filing fee. And then sometimes the court has this imaging fee which they pay $5 or $10 to scan your documents into their system. <laughs> so if your trust is this big? No, no, not your trust. Not your trust. Oh, talking about will. Okay. Uh, then the court's going to do what's called an inventory fee. The inventory fee is based on the value of the assets. It used to be a straight uh, percentage. Now it's based on a formula that nobody really understands. It seems to be a bell curve. If I've got a little bit of assets, the percentage seems to be lower. If I've got a medium-sized assets, and I think it's about around 750, you know, it seems to be higher. Then when I start getting a little more, you know, into the millions, that's lower again. It's actually kind of a weird formula. Um, it's on my computer. I just type it in. It just pops out the fee. Well, let's say for our discussions, one percent. The reason people really want to avoid probate is in the bad old days. Um, and this is actually the way when Dennis first started practicing. So, um, a friend of mine actually got me into the legal field. His wife is here. So, um, in the bad old days, what would happen is the court would charge a fee for filing. You had to go to court for every single incident. Everything was under a formal hearing, so you had to go in front of the judge. The older attorneys got to go first because it was just a deference thing. The court got a percentage, the attorneys got a fee, and they got a percentage of the estate. So it was very expensive. Now, they redid the probate court in 1999 under the Estates and Protected Individuals Code. We call it EPIC. They made a whole informal probate in which the probate clerk or registrar gets to make determinations. So it's much more streamlined, but it still does take time. Uh, minimum time is basically five months. You have to publish notice. That takes four months, and then you have 28 days after you uh, put in your final statement um, so the court can see any objections. The one problem about probate court is, let's go back under a hypothetical. So you're doing well. We made it through the probate court. Nobody's objected to anything. We give a final accounting to everybody, a notice that we're going to close, and then a nice letter goes to everybody saying you have 28 days to object. So what the thing is, is they're like, you know, I never objected before, but now I have a true invitation. 
and for $20, I can get a hearing. That's a pretty good deal. <laughs> so you file your objection, you file your $20, and all of a sudden you're in front of the judge at the very end. So you do lose control in the probate court and the fees can be added. What is nice about trust is if you have a revocable trust, revocable means that you can change it as long as you're competent and alive, you can amend it. Statistically, people under the age of 50 will amend their trust five times. What do you think when you get older and make a trust? Do you amend it less or more? More. Statistically, the older you are when you first draft a trust, you will amend it more. Um, I've worked with trusts that are on their 10th, 12th amendment. Now, after that, what we do is we restate the trust. We just basically have somebody retype it, and then we call it restated, and we put all of the changes into one document. But it does have a flexibility amendment. Longevity of distributions. One nice thing about trusts is you can do a longevity of distributions. What that means is I can say in my trust that my beneficiaries don't receive their gift until the age of 65. That's okay. Um, I asked this lady if I could do this, and she said yes. Um, wonderful lady, one of my very first clients ever. She used to come in and amend her trust a lot. So I remember her coming in, and she said, my son just, I'm still not happy with the way he's making financial decisions. We need to extend his age. Now, she was pretty old. So I'm thinking, you know, how old is her son? Her son was 70 years old. She goes, I want to extend it till he's 75 till he gets his distribution because I just don't think he gets wow. it. <laughs> Didn't I tell you I was naive and dumb when I first started? <laughs> When's that boy going to grow up? When is he going to grow up? When is he going to get financially responsible? But that was her right. It's her stuff. But there's more flexibility in trust. I love trust because you can use them for charitable issues. And that is, one of the wonderful things you can do with a trust is you can say, the trust is going, to, the home is going to remain in trust or the asset's going to remain in trust during the lifetime of, let's pick on my two daughters. After that, the asset goes to a charity or the conference or somebody else. So it allows a beneficiary to use an asset. Yep during their lifetime, and then that asset goes to a charity. That is a wonderful thing. You can also do other distributions. Um, I do warn you from not ruling from the grave, but uh, in other states, Michigan's a little iffy on this. Um, I've been involved in trust that says, if somebody does something, then they get their distribution. Now the popular one for parents is usually education. If they go to school, if they get certain grades, they get more money or they get distributions. But I've also been involved in a trust that says once you get a divorce, you get your inheritance. Michigan doesn't recognize that right now. Okay. Yep. Types of trusts. Revocable, you can change it at any time. Majority of your trusts are going to be revocable. You want it revocable. There are some reasons in which you would have it that it's not revocable. And that would be an irrevocable. 
Irrevocable trust, a lot of times what you see, these, is you see them life insurance trusts. Um, what I may do is I may put my life insurance into an irrevocable trust. And the reason I do that is I might want to take that out of my estate for tax purposes. Let's say I'm single and I have $11.4 million in assets. I wouldn't pay taxes. That $1 over it, I will. Let's put me at $12 million. I will pay some taxes, so I may go out and get a life insurance policy for the tax amount. Put that in an irrevocable trust. It pays my, um, it pays my taxes. Again, it's a little bit more complicated, but it does give some flexibility. It also becomes irrevocable after death or when I'm incompetent. That is actually a saving tool, right? If I don't have the ability to make my decisions anymore and my backup person, my, tr my successor trustee comes in, then I have some protections because my trust probably says that they will take care of me with my assets. And in my trust, I use language in a, in a manner in which I become accustomed what that means is don't put me in the cheap nursing home, put me in a little bit better one. <laughs> so I can kind of set the standard. And this is your language, it's what you want in your trust. So I consider that a very good tool. Special needs trust, these are wonderful. They work very well. If you have a beneficiary, a child, or somebody else that has special needs, what do I mean by special needs? They're receiving state or federal benefits. So let's say you have a child that is receiving um, state or federal benefits because of their disability. They can only have so many assets. And if they have more than those assets, they become ineligible. So what we do is we have a special needs trust established. We can either do it inside of our normal trust or we can do a separate trust for it. These are wonderful, they work well. For me personally, I always get my special needs trust approved by the court, and I give Department of Human Services notice of the hearing, they can come and object. They've never come and object, but what I wanna do is I wanna open the door and allow them to come in, because years from now, I don't want the state to say, we never knew about this trust, so we want to have this person no longer able to receive benefits. They are forever closed, and you know what? Go argue with a probate judge if you're somebody that works with the state. The judges don't like it. So this is a wonderful tool. If you have somebody with special needs in your family, you want to have them receive assets, this is a must. They work very, very well. Uh, testamentary trust. What these are is their trust inside of a will. These are really the simplest trust that you're going to find. And what they are is in my will, it might say, in the event my children are under the age of 22 years old, I'm just picking an age, it's not uh, what it is for us, but in the event my children are under the age of 22 years old, a trust is to be established. These are the parameters in which they're to receive their share pursuant to the trust, and here's the trustees. It's a very good tool, and then once the child turns over 22 years old, if I die and the child is 25, that whole section is cut out. But these are very good tools. It makes your will a little bit more sophisticated, but it's still a great tool. So the trust is part of the will, it kind of just 
stipulates the will creates the will creates the trust. Maybe. Depends if the circumstances are met. Constructive trust, don't really worry about this, but you may have heard this term. Constructive trusts are established by the court. Sometimes we will run into court and actually have the trust that the court establish a trust like a special needs trust. Let's say somebody is giving a client of mine, uh, let's say I represent somebody that's got special needs, all of a sudden the aunt has distributed some money for them. Judge, we need to establish a special needs trust. I will actually write the trust. I'll say, Judge, I think this one's really nice. What do you think? Most of the time the judge will say, this is great. Let's do this. But it is the time where we do want to come into court and we do want the court to establish a trust for us. There's some other examples. Maybe we've got some um, property that has, let's say, pollution on it. I don't want to hold the property myself. I get it as an inheritance. I'll have a constructive trust established by the court and I'll say, it's over here. Uh, let's keep that away from our regular assets. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about some real nuances with trust. These are going to be some little bit more complicated issues. So we talked about federal taxes. Remember the first day that we met, I said back in the old days, you know, <laughs> the 90s. <laughs> um, Anything over $600,000 was taxed at 50%. So if I had an estate of $700,000, the first $600,000 was free for taxes. The additional $100,000 was taxed at 50%. This is the old rumor of the state or the federal government takes half of your money. They take up to half of your money if you're in a certain circumstances. This year, we already talked about this, but this year is $11.4 million. So if I have $11.3 million, I never pay federal estate tax or state tax, state with Michigan. So that's a wonderful thing. The reason of establishing trust just to save federal state funds is kind of gone. But I'm going to tell you how it worked just so you can understand it. So if you ever go to one of those seminars and they say you have to have a trust because we're going to save you half of the money that the federal government's going to take, you can say, ah, no. So how they used to work is we used to have two different trusts. Um, we'll pick up my wife and I. Let's say, let's go back to the $600,000. I would put half of our estate in my wife's trust, half of it in my trust. And let's say we were worth $1.4 million. Not that we have that. I'm sorry, you're still not getting a lot. <laughs> not that we have that, but we might have life insurance. The federal government is very smart. The probate court takes a picture of my assets as of the date of my death. The minute I die, they want to know what my assets are to inventory it. Federal government, the minute of my, or the second of my death, and after. Why I say that is they will bring in life insurance, even term life insurance. So let's say I had a million four in life insurance. They will say that my estate was worth a million four. So under my hypothetical, let's say my beneficiary was my trust. My trust would break out 
that million four, 700,000, I'm sorry, 600,000 into one of the trust, so it's protected. The other amount would be put in one of the other trusts. It's called a credit shelter trust, and it would be tax-free to my wife. If we handle it correctly upon the death of my wife, we never pay federal estate tax. And there's some manipulation, and there's some nuances there, and you spend lots of time with your accountant, and you switch money back and forth, but it does work. And it was wonderful, it worked well. And so what we would do is you would come in and we'd do these analysis, and we'd say, okay, this is what we could save you in federal estate tax based on the rules today. Most of that is gone. You know, most of us aren't gonna hit 11.4 million. And if you're married, it's double that with portability. So we no longer worry about what we refer to as tax shelter trust. But if you're in that situation, not a problem, we can still fix it. Now, the other thing I want to talk to you about is there's a misnomer that if you put your property in trust, you can protect it from Medicaid. These used to be referred to as Medicaid trust. They don't work anymore, period. They just don't work. Under very, very, very limited circumstances, you can still get one to work if you go and get it approved by the court. So the problem ends up being is we have what's called a 60-month look back, five years. So if I were to give you a piece of property, let's say it's worth, eh, let's say it's one of the UP properties, it's worth $20,000. <laughs> it's three, 400 acres. It's prime swampland. <laughs> I mean, really prime. It's so nice, even the deer won't go there. <laughs> Don't laugh, I actually had some of that once. <laughs> um, so I'm going to give him that property. So I become sick. I don't have a lot of assets. So I need to get into a nursing home. A nursing home, the average last time I looked at it, you guys will have a better idea than this, was about, I think the amount was about $8,800, give or take. So they look at the, at the Michigan average of nursing homes. So let's say it costs about $9,000 for me to be in a good nursing home. Not per year, per month. So where am I gonna get this $100,000 plus to stay there? I don't have it. So I'm going to apply to the state, Department of Human Services, I'm gonna say, I'm broke. Please pay for this for me. By the way, I've paid taxes forever, so thank you for helping me with this. So what will happen is they will look at my application. They're gonna say, what are your assets? And they're very, very good now because they're tied into most of the registered deeds. And they're gonna say, but you had this property in Delta County that you gave away. We don't have any objection to that, but we're gonna say that that, value, that property was $100,000. So we're going to, the general term is claw that back, or bring that back with our clause of the state back into your estate. And we're going to say that once you spend that $100,000 for your care, what we think the property is worth, come back and talk to us again. It's a little bit more complicated, but that's really what the conversation is. 
So the problem is, is estate planners a while ago said, we're gonna throw everything in an irrevocable trust, we're gonna be fine. The state of Michigan goes, no, that still falls into the clawback. You said revocable? Irrevocable. Irrevocable. Because I can say to the state, I don't have control over it anymore, and my bad trustee, Sal, will not give it to me. <laughs> I am shocked and amazed. I am now broke. <laughs> oh, by the way, Sal, give it to my kids when I die. <laughs> Pardon? Any time period. They call, they use terrible words like fraud and felony. <laughs> so, so I thought the callback was five years. It is five years. He said 10 years. But what they're saying is they will probably still set that irrevocable trust away because they'll say it was a fraudulent trust. Because what they're saying is it's not only the state of Michigan, but Sal is not paying me anything. He's not paying any of my creditors. So it's basically a fraudulent trust. I've actually been in the court where the judge just rips on, ripped on a prominent estate planning attorney. And they weren't fighting the state. They were fighting one of those annoying credit card companies that the person just didn't want to pay. So what he did is he racked up a bunch of credit card debt. He goes, I don't have any money. My trust has everything. You don't mess with international banks. They sued his irrevocable trust. Trustee said, I can't pay you. It doesn't say in here I can pay you. They said, eh, no fraud. So you clarify for me, if I understand correctly. Uh, so you have to spend down. You have to spend like down. Right. But the look back and, and the uh, reduction of assets does not include your homestead? It does not include your homestead. There are basically a number of non-countable assets for Medicaid. Number one, we say a home of any value in Michigan, but it, there is a cap, but most houses in Michigan don't hit that cap. A car of any value, this will be important in a minute, about $2,500 in personal property. So if I have a house, if I have a car, if I have my personal stuff, and if I have $2,500, I can get Medicaid. Now, what they will do is they will attach my house. And so when my house goes to probate, they will put a lien against it. Let's say for my care, they racked up about $350,000. So they will put a lien against my house for $350,000. So they will tell my kids, pay the lien. And you can have the house. We'll take the lien off. They're not going to take it. They're just going to put a lien on it. My house isn't worth $300,000. I was going to say, what if your house is only worth $70,000? That's probably realistic. Um, so what happens is the house gets sold. The state gets paid back. There's $75,000 under your hypothetical. But there are... Do you have to pay the difference? No. Of that $350,000? Well, they'll go against my estate, but my estate doesn't have anything, my probate estate. So... Um, there is a way around this. Right now, <laughs> our, our recording device broke. <laughs> um, right now, we've been using Ladybird Deeds. So what a Ladybird Deed says, I'm gonna pick on you one more time, that's it, but we only have six minutes, so trust me, it's not too much of a buy from being picked on. Let's say I change it, and I say, okay, I'm gonna put you on my deed. 
So it's going to be my wife, me, and you on a deed. Okay, my wife and I are going to do a deed from the two of us now to the three of us. But my wife and I are going to reserve the right to sell the house, to mortgage the house, to transfer the house, to rent it out, to do anything we want. We don't lose any of our present interest of ownership in the house. Then when we die, you get it if we didn't do anything that during our lifetime. And if we want to extinguish it, we just do a deed not from the three of us, but from the two of us, back to the two of us. And I like to put a little term in there. This is to set aside anything under the title standards as far as our ladybird deed. I don't use the word ladybird deed, but I would use the title standards. And so now you're out. But what have I done? I've remained control of the house for everything. I can mortgage it, I can sell it, I can rent it out, and I get the money for it. Um, then what have I done? Also, the state of Michigan can only go after my probatable asset for my house. That house will never be probated because when my wife and I die, it goes to her automatically. It passes outside of the probate estate. And then what else have we done? We've really protected the house for somebody else. This is not the terrible fraud word. It's currently acceptable. Um, I was involved in basically the very first ladybird deed in central Michigan. It worked. A lot of us were surprised. But remember, um, if the client wants to take a risk, sometimes we do things a little bit cutting edge, and it worked well. It saved the family farm. Literally, it saved the family farm because it came with a lot of acres. One, you can only protect your homestead. Now, I said something else, a car of any value. So some estate planner attorneys and elder law attorneys, all elder law attorneys are, is there an estate planner attorney that does Medicaid and Medicare? What they will tell you is go out and buy an Escalade. You got $75,000, $80,000 in your account, we want to do a spend down, go buy an Escalade. The problem is, is on the application for um, declaring the assets, I've got to put um, 1999 Cadillac. That seems offensive. So I'm probably saying that to somebody that's working for the state for very little money, that this vehicle is worth a lot of what he or she makes. What I prefer are classic cars. I don't mean old junk cars. I mean the 63 Corvette split window. You get a fuel injection one in there? I'm getting excited now. So I can still spend the $75,000, maybe if I get one that's in number two, number three condition in that car. I can put it in somebody's garage with a car cover, hopefully heated and moisture controlled. I can insure that car with Haggerty. I'm probably paying two, three hundred dollars in insurance in it per year. And when I pass away, that car maybe is worth seventy-five or eighty or ninety thousand dollars. What have I done? I have spent down. I have now on my application told the state of Michigan that I own a 1963 Chevrolet, less offensive. And I've gotten an asset that will probably go up in value. What do I want you to get from our discussion today? What I want you to get from our discussion today, and I'll get back to you after, um, is 
Trust are based on your circumstances. If you want to retain control of your assets, if you're in a situation where you want to make distributions later to beneficiary, a trust works. If you are so terrified of probate that when you drive by that building, you break out in hives, a trust will work. But probate is not bad. If you are only using a trust to avoid probate, you have spent money today to save your heirs. I am cheap at heart. Trust costs a variety of different numbers. Somebody mentioned $2,000. We've had discussion earlier this week that they're much higher than that. I've seen them lower than that. But let's use $2,000. I understand spending $2,000 today or my estate having to pay $2,000 many years down the road. My cheap side likes $2,000 many years down the road. Now, if I need to avoid federal estate tax, you gotta use a trust. I can save you millions. If you got somebody in special needs, you gotta use a trust. It will provide protection for those benefits. It works every day of the week. If you have circumstances in which you want your beneficiary to use the asset during their lifetime, you wanna give to charity afterwards, trust works. Now there's other things that you can talk about. We're gonna talk about that on Friday. There's annuities that work just as well sometimes. Depends on your circumstances. If you just don't want to pay the probate, and if you properly fund and maintain your trust, it does work. If you want to be like your friends or somebody else and say, I've got a trust and it's a status symbol, that's a bad reason to do it. Many people say they have a trust, they don't have it funded, and really what they have is an expensive headache. The state is not going to take 50% of your assets if you don't have a trust. Some of you may need a trust. It's based on your circumstances. That's a wonderful thing. But don't go into a situation where you have to have the trust. It's a tool. It's a very good estate planning tool, but it's not for everybody. Okay? No, because you kept it in your name. He, he had a great question. Does the Ladybird deed look, it go into the clawback of five years or 60 months? The answer is no. But I'm going to put that with a qualifier. No, not right now. Okay, the reason that uh, elder law, and I know we're going a few minutes late. If you've got to go, just go. Um, the reason that elder law has become so popular is they keep on changing the rules. Um, I did a lot of elder law planning before it was popular. I worked in an accounting firm. We, we thought great things that worked very well for a couple of years. <laughs> then they would change the law. And so you kept on being ahead of it. At one point, it was like chasing your tail. And I, I respect the state, right? Um, I, I truly believe that we need to pay on to Caesar what that which is Caesar's. But I also believe that we need to be treated fairly, right? Now, I don't know what fair is all the time, but I know I pay a lot of taxes. <laughs> And I know that, you know, maybe I may need to be cared for in the future. I don't have a problem with that if it's legitimate. But what you need to kind of look at is, are you being fair with elder law? Are you, are you using the law to your advantage properly, or are you being fraudulent? Fraudulent's bad. Taking advantage of the law is 
the way they're written is okay. The other thing I want to leave you with is if you're not sure if you need a trust, talk to somebody. Talk it through. If you have a trust right now, maintain it and fund it. Review it. If you have nothing, we'll talk about that on Friday, what you need to do and what you should do. Okay? I'm sorry for going over time, but um, this is actually one of the bigger issues in estate planning because there's not really a true understanding of trust. And even people have had trust for years don't really know what they say. First thing, somebody comes to my office, they bring their, they bring their estate planning binder. And if they went to a really expensive place, they're leather. Not leather, they're actually leather. And they're like, here's my trust. And I'm like, wow, that is neat. And I say, what does it say? And they say, I don't know. <laughs> but I paid a lot of money and it's leather and it has my name on it and it's gold. <laughs> it's the coolest thing ever. And then I say, is your stuff in it? And they say, I don't know. <laughs> and I say this in jest, not to make light of it, but I want you to remember it. Because that is most of my former clients. That is most of my former clients. They had a document, they had something, and they don't know what it is. It's not properly set up. And if that's what you've done, you've lost. You have not been a good steward. And the reason why is, it's like anything else. If you bought a car, you would wash it. You would maintain it. Your vehicle that transports you from one place to the other is the same as your vehicle that transports your assets from one place to another, which is we call a trust. If you're going to take care of your automobile, why wouldn't you take care of your financial vehicle, which is your trust? So like ownership of a vehicle has responsibilities, ownership of a trust has responsibilities. I've talked way too long. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, we ask that as we leave here that you be with us. Lord, we know that you are the creator of all things, and we love you for that. Lord, we ask that you guide our path today, guide our steps. Lord, if there's anybody here that needs a special blessing, we ask that you be with them today. And Lord, we just thank you for the many blessings that you provide. And we understand blessings come in good and not so good. We understand that hardships are also a blessing, and we praise you for those too. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.